Dear Heavenly Father, once again, we assemble together on a Sunday morning, and Lord, we do call this our worship service. And Lord, we ask that the worship of our singing would be acceptable, and Lord, we're thankful that we can sing the words of songs like led by the Spirit and taught by the Bible. Lord, that our faith is not a subjective one, something that relies upon how I feel or what I think to be true, but we can simply trust your word. We ask you to work in our hearts during the remaining songs, the special, the preaching, Lord, even the offering, that all that is done today would lead us to a point of surrender to you. And as we learned in in our Sunday school time, that surrender must be daily. And we ask that we would walk differently because of our time spent here together around your word and singing your hymns and with other believers in Christ this morning, that you may be recognized in our lives as we walk in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And turn to Psalm 46 and verse 10, one of our theme verses for this year. And children, you may be dismissed to the children's and toddlers' churches. Psalm 46 and verse 10. And oftentimes I like to spend time on Sunday morning just examining one verse. And this morning I'd like to just examine two words. The first two words of verse 10, if we may, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. Let's just read the whole verse one more time. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, that's the entire verse. And there's, uh, uh, it starts out with a command. And then God makes a statement of what is going to happen. He says, I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. And If you really want to know what the entire book of Revelation and many of the cataclysmic events that happen in the book of Revelation are about, it is the ultimate fulfillment of those last two statements as God exalts himself among the heathen, uh, stepping and trampling upon all of the uh, greatest accomplishments of mankind and his goodness. And God exalts himself to become the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But that first part of the verse is a command and and one of our themes for this year. Be still and know that I am God. And this morning, I would like us to look at be still. What does it mean to be still? Uh, Probably the most often quoted Bible verse in church with parents and children. Be still. Be still. Stop. Shh. Be still. Um, and yet, in those that are trying to cause others to be still, it's often ignored because we're too busy trying to make others be still. And that's one of the reasons we have a children's church and a toddler's church. Amen? Is they can learn to be still downstairs. And by the time they get about 12 years old, hopefully, prayerfully, uh, by God's grace, they've learned to be still enough, and, and there's lots of evidence that that has happened, and we're thankful for that. But we've got to put this in the overall context. You see, just taking a phrase out of the Bible, be still, you might think, uh, uh, I, I doubt there's very many people who might know who this man is. His name was Francis Schaeffer. Uh, not to be... Uh, uh, confused with Francis Sperry Schaefer, who was one of the founders of Dallas Theological Seminary. But Francis Schaefer lived in the, uh, he passed away in the late 90s, I believe. 
Uh, he was what we call, he was one of the founders of the Christian apologetic movement, meaning that uh, we go to the world and convince the world that the Bible is true. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I'm not totally against uh, that in, in, in and of itself, but if someone will not believe that they're a sinner, there's nothing else you can do to convince them. But if they'll believe they're a sinner and that Jesus died to pay the price for their sin, they'll eventually come to the proper understanding of who created the heaven and the earth. And they'll understand the God's design and all of these things that the apologists try to argue about today. And, and uh, the reason I bring up Mr. Schaefer was he had studied his Bible and had had all of these great arguments uh, against the theology and the philosophies of the world, and uh, a greatly educated man. But in his latter years, he said, the Bible says, be still and know that I am God. So he got rid of his wardrobe and bought a white robe and had a group of followers, and they wandered through the Alps uh, in Switzerland, I, I'm told. I mean, the pictures are absolutely gorgeous and uh, that'd be a great place to be in the summertime. I don't know about the winter. I think it'd get a little cold in a white robe. Uh, but he, he just wandered the Alps for years waiting for Jesus to come back, thinking that this, among many other verses, that he was watching for the Lord to come and he was being still. And that's not what this verse is talking about. You see, look at verse 1, if you would. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That is the concept, the context of being still and knowing that God is God, that He is who He said He is. You see, you wouldn't be here this morning if you didn't have some concept of God and, and, and have some desire to worship Him in one way or another. Why would you be a church if you, you didn't do that? And in that, we, what goes on here doesn't differ a whole lot in its basic concept from what goes on in every place that calls himself church is they come and they want to worship God. Now, how you get that done? Boy, that's, what, that's when it starts getting really scary. Because so much of what is called worship is actually an invention of mankind. Is actually traditions that men have developed over the years. The statuaries in many of the Episcopal and Catholic churches come from a medieval uh, philosophy that the average person is ignorant. And, and at that time, the literacy rate uh, of the populate, general population in Europe was only probably about 20 or 25 percent. They said people can't read the Bible. They can't understand it. By the way, if you tried to read it for yourself, they usually burned you at the stake with a copy of your Bible at your feet. Uh, it was not that they wanted to encourage you to read the Bible. Uh, they wanted to give you a reminder of the Bible stories, kind of like what we do with the pictures on Sunday school time. Uh, now, I like our Sunday school pictures. But if anybody tries to get up here and kiss the screen, uh, they're going to get in trouble because that won't help the screen any. Amen? Uh, uh, people don't worship those pictures. And yet, in the Orthodox and its various religions, they kiss the icons, they bow down before them, they pray to them, and they curse the Catholics for having statues. Because the Catholics do exactly the same thing to their statues that the Orthodox have done for centuries to their icons. Then you get the Episcopal. And I have no clue what they do. Uh, other than 
They love the ornamentation. You look at the buildings, some of the most beautiful buildings in the world, most ornate church buildings. Uh, St. John the Divine here in Manhattan, they've been building that building for how long now? I don't even know. Decades and decades and decades, and they plan on never, ever finishing it. There's always going to be something new to do. Could I challenge you that all that activity will keep you from knowing who God is? And the reason that it is there is to drown out the truth. The antithesis of this verse, the fact that they don't know who God is. And that's not anything new. Paul said to the Greeks in Athens, you have, you're all too superstitious. He said, you have an altar to the unknown God. I'm going to tell you about the unknown God because you don't know the God of the Bible. You have no clue who he is. Let me explain a little bit about him. Why do we have so much music and commotion today? You know, it used to be that you could go into a restaurant and concentrate on eating your food. And you could hear what the person across the table was saying to you. Now you go into a restaurant. Boom, boom, boom. Oh, man, I just, uh, it just drives me crazy. And the worst ones are the ones that play the boom, boom, boom. And then they have five or six different TV screens all around there doing different things all at the same time. And I'm going, I don't want to eat in Times Square. Uh, I'll just go home where it's quiet. Well, as quiet as it can be with five kids around the table. Uh, that kind of noise doesn't bother me. But we, we live in a world full of chatter. And we live in a world where everyone is desperately trying to do something. If I appear just a little stiff or you see me wincing this morning, that's because we loaded a 30-yard container and then moved in about three tons, almost four, three and a half tons of uh, timber and plywood, and then spent the next two days trying to get most of it put down over at Union. And uh, uh, the word sore? Mm, kind of. Uh, I think I passed that on Wednesday afternoon. But uh, uh, no serious damage. Uh, praise God, our work crew is headed back to Cleveland. I'll have a few days to recover before we get started again. But... Why, why do we do this? Because we're trying to get something done. We want to get back in that building and hold services. That's important, is it not? Can we say amen to that? There, there is energy expended and needs to be expended. There are things that consume our schedules that must be done every day. And yet the Bible says, be still. And know that I am God. Now, let me read you the definition of the word still. Say, Pastor, I know what it means, yes, but let's just take a moment here. This is the Oxford English Dictionary. We preach out of an English Bible. We'll get an English definition. Without noise or commotion. Now, I didn't write this. This, was, this is a dictionary. Quietly, silently, in a low voice. Softly. Definition two. At rest. Motionless. I love this last phrase. Without change of place or attitude. Now, you could not change your place, but your attitude can sure change, huh? Uh, that's what the word still means. Uh, we often joked, especially when Stephen was around, uh, with, uh, Assurance used to sing us, Be still and know what God can do. Standing still is hard to do. And we'd all laugh and look at Stephen uh, because he, he just 
had a had a real problem with that. He's gotten over most of it now that he's a sophomore in Bible college. Amen. Well, some of it. And uh, I hope he never gets over some of it. Amen. You just need to have that energy. It's it's encouraging. But it's hard not to have your attitude change. It's hard not to be moved out of the place where you're supposed to be. And thought about preaching a sermon I've preached before on distraction. Because you can't be still and be distracted. And I don't know about you, but I am so easily distracted. I mean, just about anything can get my mind off of what I'm supposed to be preaching about. In fact, I'm chasing a rabbit right now, aren't I? You see, that's not being still. By the way, it's prefaced with the word be. That is the state of being. The I am verb. Be. Was. Is. Are. It, it connects the first part, equates the first part with the second part. Now, what is the subject uh, of this sentence? If we have any grammarians out there, the proper term is the subject of this sentence is you understood because it's not in print. The Writer does not, in, in English, he does not say, you be still, unless there's an exclamation point followed and somebody is condemning another. Uh, you is understood. It does not need to be put into the text. This is a command. Somebody says, well, I'm just getting to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments. Well, this isn't even part of the law, my friend, but this is a command directly from God to his people. I would like you to understand that one of the greatest reasons the world in which we live cannot see God is because God's people won't be still. We're always second-guessing God. How many would say guilty, Pastor? And if you can't, can't be honest in church, where are you going to be honest? You see, God says, I'm going to be exalted in the earth. I'm going to be exalted among the heathen. I don't think I got that in the right order there. Um, I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. God says, listen... I'm here. The context is God is our strength. He's our refuge. He is a very present help in trouble. Therefore, will not we fear? And the command is to be still without noise or commotion, quietly, silently, in a low voice, at rest, motionless, without change of place or attitude. That describes Jesus in the ship with the disciples while the ship was sinking. He was still. He was taking a nap. He was in perfect peace. But see, the disciples had gone through a dramatic attitude change. When Jesus said, let's go to the other side. Hey, we got this, Lord. We've been crossing this sea for, for our entire lives. It said they took him as he was, put him in the boat, let's go. And all of a sudden, the wind began to kick up. And the storm began to move in across that little mountain lake. And the waves began to move and the ship began to rock. And all of a sudden, a wave broke over the bow of the ship and began to pour water in the boat. And my favorite little story, boat in water, good. Water in the boat, bad. And the ship was filling with water. 
It's not a good thing. And in my mind, I have the picture of Jesus laying in the back of the ship, his head on his mantle rolled up, the water maybe halfway up his legs, close to his waist, soaking wet, peacefully sleeping, while the disciples are going, Bail! Bail! Get the water out! We can't get it out faster than it's getting in! And finally, they run to Jesus in a state of total panic and terror. Don't you even care? We're going to die! And Jesus didn't move. He didn't change his attitude. And of course, in all of our dramatics, we have him going, Please be still! It just fits. But in reality, he probably just stood up and said, Peace, be still. Because he didn't need to raise his voice. He wasn't putting on a show for the discipleship. Now, that's good for Trinity Broadcasting. You're going to have that. You've got to have lots of dramatics. Because that's what people like. But God said, be still. You know what Jesus was doing? He was being still. And then the waves were still. And then the disciples had another attitude change. They were now terrified at the incredible power possessed by this man. They worshipped him as God. Now, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 37. I love using the Bible as a commentary on the Bible because the Bible has the answers. The Bible will explain how we are supposed to be still. We, we cannot always uh, do what Jesus would have done. Uh, that one preacher, I think his name was Sheldon or something, came up with this, what would Jesus do? And that's always just troubled me a little bit because when Jesus met a blind man, he made him see. And unless you're Ernest Angeli or one of those fake healers out there, you're not going to do that. And they don't do it either, by the way. Benny Hinn has never given sight to any person not happen. If he could, and if he had, it would be on the front page of every major newspaper. In the He would borrow the money and run all the ads because everybody would come to him at that point if he could prove it. But he can't. And he never will. Because the power belongs to God, not to men. But in Psalm 37, verse 3, we're just going to pick a little section here that I believe will help us. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him. And he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light and thy judgment as the noonday. Now, well, let's just read 7 and 8 too. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way. Because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Now, when we talk about being still, uh, I've just come up with three words that I want us to think about as we think about be still. 
How many times has this happened? If you're a parent, it, it's happened. If, if you're in charge of anything at work, I'm sure that this has happened to you. As you are there, you're looking at a perplexing problem. This has often happened at Union and before when we were doing jobs here. Is you're sitting there, you're looking at a problem and going, what do I do? And all of a sudden, I hear this little voice behind me. It used to be Philip all the time. Before him, it was Stephen. And uh, before him, it was Peter. Well, Dad, why don't you do this? How many of you have ever been there? I mean, that is so frustrating. You're sitting here, you're looking, you're thinking, and you got all these things going. All of a sudden, this little voice comes... Excuse me, if I had wanted you to fix the problem, I would have explained it. I would have asked you. Did I, did I ask you? Well, Dad, you said, what do I do? I said, I wasn't asking you. You see, one of the reasons God gives us children is so we can begin to understand a little bit about what he has to put up with from us. How many times have you said, now, Lord, if you would just fill in the blank. And I can almost hear God saying, did I ask you your advice? Do I need you to help me figure this thing out? You say, God really talks like that? Well, look what it says here. It says, trust in the Lord. If I'm trusting in the Lord, that means I'm not giving direction. The first word is determination. You know, we we believe here in the United States, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as outlined in the uh, Declaration of Independence. And and, uh, we talk about those things and really... Uh, the whole idea, the most misunderstood, (coughs) excuse me, of course, is the pursuit of happiness. And really what that is, is the right of self-determination. The right and the privilege of being able to get up in the morning and decide where I'm going to expend my life's effort, what clothes I will wear, what I will do. I get to determine these things. Well, this American philosophy has bled itself into Christianity to where now we have churches that reflect the world much better than they do reflect the image of Christ. We we have people that get together in bars because, you know, it's just comfortable to be in a bar. Now, I don't know. The only time I ever knowingly have actually been in a bar was back before the days of cell phone. And uh, we got lost in a rural area. No, nothing, no maps, no, I had no idea where to go. And so I had to find a phone and that was the only phone. I didn't like it. I don't want to go back. But some people say, oh, we're just comfortable here. How can you worship God in a place dedicated to the destruction of the human soul and everything that is called righteous. And yet they do that. Why? Because I will reach more people that way than waiting for them to come through the doors of the church like you do. In fact, a guy coined this term, the stained glass barrier. I'm so glad we have stained glass windows. Because they're beautiful, number one. I don't look forward to fixing them, but we will eventually. All the little cracks and things. But but the main reason I like stained glass windows is just stick my finger in the eye of the author there. Because these windows have not kept anyone from coming to Christ. 
The fact that this is a church building, used to be a synagogue, has never stopped anyone from coming to Christ. You know what stops people from walking through those doors and hearing the message preached? Pride. And no matter what we did inside here, it's not going to take care of the pride that is in the heart of individuals. Only God can deal with that. You see, people have taken this right of determination and they are trying to help God get His work done. How many times something come across my desk and it says, well, the local church, it doesn't say local, the church is not reaching the world and so we have started this new ministry. Uh, uh, and it's, uh, we put on rock concerts for teenagers so that we can reach them in, in, where they are. I remember getting a phone call one day and said, won't you, won't you help us cooperate? I said, young lady, I said, you, you really don't want to talk to me. I said, you have no clue. Or un- I said, if I tried to explain it to you, you wouldn't even comprehend it. Oh, yes, I would. I said, okay. I said, here you go. I said, where's rock music come from? Silence. I said, let me tell you where it comes from. I said, it comes from the most evil and lowest segments of our society. It comes out of the gutters of the most perverse people in culture today. Study its history, my friend. The Beatles were not fun-loving young men. They were absolutely evil and perverse in every relationship they experienced. By the way, Elvis Presley was too. I said, and so now we're going to go down into the sewers of society and change the words and make them Jesus words and everybody's going to be happy. I said, I never heard anything like that before. You're crazy. I said, I told you, you wouldn't even be able to comprehend it. And she hung up the phone. You see... I do not have the right of determination. If I am trusting in the Lord, that means that He has the right to determine what is right and what is wrong. Say, why does this thing church have to be church? Why? What? Because Jesus said so, that's why. He established His church He said he will build his church. And by the way, church still works. It is the only thing that works. You talk about the megachurch movement. Guess what has happened since the megachurch movement? Overall church attendance. We're not talking about just at the megachurches. We're talking about overall church attendance has declined. With the rise of the megachurch movement. And I want to challenge you that societal holiness, just what used to be right, and I know it's Bill Clinton's fault. Yes. No, it's not. It's Bill Heibel's fault. It's uh, whatever the guy, uh, Rick Warren's fault. These are the people who have worldized the church. Joel Osteen. These are the people who have brought pagan, humanistic, heathen philosophies and wrapped them in Bible verses. And now people are becoming Christian rock stars in the heavy metal music. And Christian rappers and uh, we could go on. The perversity never ends. And and don't go home and Google it. Please, 
you will come up with things that are absolutely evil. You see, verse 4 says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Do you know what that means? I like going to church. I like going to church. I like going to church. Okay, I delighted myself in the Lord. Now give me a brand new car. That's not what it's talking about. Uh, I mean, I'll use a word that I often use when I come up with delight. Cannoli. Or whatever those things were. Apple turnovers with full of cream. Very little apple, lots of cream. Whoa, wow. Incredible stuff. Every once in a while, we've got some of those Japanese little pastry things. And I don't know what they call them. I just call them good. How many are ready for lunch right now? Dessert first. No. There are things like that that we don't have any problem delighting in. It is a natural response. I remember the story they tell of a preacher in the early 1800s. There was a new invention. It was called ice cream. And someone made some and gave it to him and he took one little taste. He said, anything that tastes that good has got to be evil. Never touched it again. Now, that's not true. But, of course, if you try to live on an ice cream diet, bad things are going to happen to you. That's not the way it was ever designed. You see, we delight ourselves in the Lord, allowing Him to rewrite everything that is inside of us. That means all of a sudden... What we desire is no longer what we desire. We are trying. That's what the Old Testament, that's what the tabernacle is all about. It is lining up what goes on in my heart with what has already been proclaimed by God's. That is delight. And you see, once I get enough of God's desires in my heart, in the proper attitude, God then begins to answer my prayers His way. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart, because the desires in your heart are no longer yours, they're now His. Are we still together? You see, commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in Him. And what's that next word in your Bible? Look, look, there, look, look there real close, please. Verse 5. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in Him. And who? Who's He? The Lord, God, God will bring it to pass. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time God brought something to pass in your life? Got quiet. Some people, God saves them and that's it. That's the only thing that God ever brought to pass in their life. Now, if that's true, I'm I'm glad that that person got saved. We're not going to discount that. But that's the beginning, not the end, my friend. You see, when it says, commit thy way unto the Lord, that means I give up my right to determine what I'm going to do when I trust in Him. That means that God is getting the work done and not me. That's the first word. You see, being still means I have to stop deciding what God should and shouldn't do. 
that I got to get out of the way. That's why I call it determination. The second word we'll find in the next verses is momentum. How many of you have ever started something you couldn't finish? You started, man, it looks good. I got a plan. Just like the Lone Ranger, I got a plan. And we're going to make this thing happen. And then everything falls apart. You know why? Because you couldn't keep it going. You see, that's called momentum. That's, that is the, the power of impetus, we might say. That is the force that keeps things going in the right direction. So often we have the same attitude toward God that the theistic evolutionist has, that God wound up this whole world like a clock and let it go, and he doesn't care. And Well, God saved me, but he still expects me to use my brain. Yes, he does. To tell yourself to shut up, sit down, and be still. Say, I don't want to. Do it anyway. Amen? Uh Uh-oh. See, we don't want to do it anyway. Because we don't like being still. Because we got to do something. Wait a minute. No, you don't. If God doesn't get it done, and we're not talking about some passive thing where you wander with Francis Schaeffer in the Alps. What we're talking about is surrendering the right to determine what I'm going to do to God. Now look what it says. Verse 6, And he, God, shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him, Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. How many of you have fretted about terrorists and what they're going to do in the world? How many of you are worried about that? The Bible tells us that we're not supposed to worry about those things. The Bible tells us we're not supposed to worry about the politicians. Now, you better be careful. You have a right to vote. That's not what it's talking about. Exercise your rights as a citizen. Vote. But what it's saying here is, I'm to rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. It is He that is going to bring forth my righteousness and judgment. Do you know what judgment is? Judgment is the ability to tell the difference between right and wrong. By the way, there's another level to judgment. It's being able to tell the difference between what is good and what is excellent. And the Bible puts that forth in many different passages. God wants us to be out of the realm of the difference between right and wrong. If you're living your entire life on the edge between what is right and what is wrong, how in the world are you going to ever serve God? We've got to get past that. We've got to get up there to what is good and what is excellent. That's Philippians chapter 3, striving for what is excellent. What would please God? What would allow Him to fulfill those desires that He has put in my heart? Rest in the Lord. Then we get to verse 8. And I call this follow-through or completion. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. How many of you have been tempted to do something wrong to make something good happen? Every one of you. That's how the devil works. Well, you don't understand. You've got to fight fire with fire. Uh, that's how you burn buildings down, my friend. 
You don't fight fire with fire. You fight fire with fire-suppressing agents. You don't fight electrical fires with water, by the way. That could be very dangerous to the fellow holding the hose. You want something non-conductive. Amen? Now, let's go back and get our definition of still. Without noise or commotion, quietly, silently, in a low voice, softly, at rest, motionless, without change of place or attitude. Now, if I surrender the right of determination, the momentum, and the follow-through to the words of God, would that be a pretty good definition of being still? Because it is God who is deciding what's going on and what's going to happen. It's God who's doing the work through me. And God's given me guidelines to keep me in the way by not falling into my own wrath and my own thing and fretting over what other people are doing. That sounds to me like no change in place or attitude. Are, are we together? I see some heads nodding up and down. Do I need to start over again? I will. Because if we're going to understand what being still is, we need to have a biblical definition. So many people serve God by their own standards. Go back to Cain. It's the seed of all false religions. That's not being still, my friend. See, let me give you a couple examples. We'll be done. How many of you can remember the day you got saved? The day you trusted Jesus as your Savior? You can raise your hand. It's church. Did you surrender your eternal destiny to the Lord Jesus Christ that day? Did you stop trying to be good enough to please God? Did you surrender your ability to make right, wrong things that you have done? Did you surrender the wrong things that other people had done to you? Did you stand before God absolutely still and just simply say, Please, Lord, save me. The publican prayed this prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm not trying to make it more complicated than the Bible But the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and loves to get in there and twist and turn and add things to God's grace. And many people have made professions of faith in Christ dependent upon some horrible circumstance that they're in. They want a way out. That's not salvation. Salvation is when I stop everything. And ask God for His mercy. That's when you get saved. That's being still. By the way, that's how you serve God. Do you know that you don't have the right to tell God what He ought to expect from your service? Because He's already told you what He expects. Let me challenge you today. If you're married, being still is being the best wife or husband you can possibly be. Because the Bible says so. That's being still. Being still is giving up that right of determination. Well, I I, I, want to get saved. I don't want to go to hell, but... But does God want me to live a miserable life and eat monkey brains on the mission field and all this? Listen, it won't matter to you where God puts you if you're surrendered to His right of determination. And then let me ask you, when's the last time God did something that you didn't do in your life? When's the last time something happened that only God could take credit for? Could I challenge you, if, it, if you can't think of anything readily, that you're not being still. And you'll never know. 
God in the way he wants you to know him until you're still enough to let him do the work. How about your service to others? Turn with me to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 2 and we'll be done this morning. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 2. You know, this is really what the Christian life is all about. But do you understand that only Christi- Christians aren't the only people that are trying to help other people? There are many people that are trying to help other people. 1 John 5 and verse 2. By this, that we know, by this we know that we love the children of God. Okay? Do you want to love other believers? In the church, we're supposed to love one another as members of Jesus Christ, members of each other, members of the same body. We are to care for each other and love each other. What is the sign? Is the sign that we hug and kiss each other on the way in and we say nice things to each other? Let me ask you a question. How many of you lied on your way into church? How are you doing? Fine. Everything okay? Yeah. That's a lie. But let me tell you, the other extreme is just as bad. You have a couple of hours. Because it's going to take at least that long to begin to explain every bad thing that's happened this week. Let alone the week before and the week before. Does anybody enjoy talking to somebody like that? Let me tell you, both extremes are just as wrong. Can we get that? You see, if I want to know that I love you as members of this church, that I have the right relationship with other people who call themselves Christians, by this we know that we love the children of God. Here's the test. When we love God and keep His commandments. By the way, one of those commandments is be still. One of the reasons our quote-unquote Christianity is so ineffectual is because we're too busy trying to do good for other people to trust God enough to let God do something for other people through us. Many people aren't going to get that statement. It's just not going to make sense. But you see, the verse says, if I want to love the children of God, i got to love God first. By loving God and keeping His commandments, I automatically do good and love others. But it doesn't work the other way. Most of us have a backwards Christianity. We think because we feel good toward other people and try to help them that we love them. And that's not true. That's not in God's list of loving the children of God. You see, in order for me to give you something without strings attached, I have to have something to give you. Well, where am I going to get it? You're either going to get it from yourself or you're going to get it from God. How many of you have caught yourself saying, I've done all I can. I can't help you anymore. Well, that's because you were giving of yourself. And you ran out. And you will run out every time because there's not enough of you to help you, let alone anybody else. You've got to get it from God. Because He has a never-ending supply. But the only way you get it from God is loving Him first. 
I was had contact with a group, and they were Baptist people and loved the Lord, but this was a statement somebody made one time many years ago, and it terrified me at the time, and it still makes me shudder today. As a young woman, she said, you know, i got a lot of things that just aren't right in my life. My marriage isn't right, and my, 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 the, the church I attend is a mess, and everything is just... But you know what? I won five people to the Lord this week, so I must be doing good. How many of you can see the problem with that statement? Leading people in a profession of faith in Christ is not salvation if it makes you feel better about sin in your life. You see, i got to get close enough to God first before I can reach out and touch someone else in a real, true way. But too many of us are too busy about trying to touch other people in a positive way instead of trying to get so plugged into God that we have to touch other people in a positive way. See, that's the difference between the truth and imitation, if I can borrow from Thursday night service. When the psalmist says, be still, I'm surrendering the right of determination, the momentum, and the conclusion of my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. When I got saved, that was easy to do because I was on my way to hell and I understood there's nothing I could do about it. It's a little more difficult when I serve Christ, but if I'll show up at church and and follow what the Bible says, I can make a halfway happenstance chance at that. But when it comes to helping others, if we don't get God first, it is going to be a disaster. Be still. And know that I am God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, I believe I preached this morning what, what you would have me to preach. And yet, I have to believe that many people are just a little confused as to the topic of the sermon and what it really means. Lord, only the Spirit of God can straighten those things out, and we ask that that would happen. That we as individuals, Lord, I pray, if there's someone here in this auditorium that's not truly saved, that they would surrender their heart and life, that they would just be still and stop trying to help you, but just let you do all the saving. Lord, if we're trying to live for you, there's not a one of us in this room who's trying to live for you that doesn't struggle with putting themselves in between God and man. Without trying to get our ideas and our thoughts across, without trying to give you direction and trying to help you do your will. Lord, I ask that the Holy Spirit would have the freedom to make this message plain and simple and apply it to the hearts of each one of us here today. And Lord, that we'd get a hold of what it means to be still. To let you determine our direction, the parameters of our life, to let you be the one who moves us to let you to stay within those guidelines and stop relying on our own heart and our own feelings. 
Lord, will you work that you may be glorified, that we could be still enough that people will be able to see the image of your Son imprinted in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. The hymn of invitation 307. Let Jesus come into your heart as Brother Franz comes and leads. If you need to come and pray, the altar is open as we sing.